before we get started, I see that Tristan and Megan are here with Silas, and why don't we give a round of applause for New Life here. Very good to have new babies, especially at Christmas time. We're going to look this morning at the Christmas story from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2, and we're going to look at uh, verses 1 through 21. So why don't you turn there? And once you have found it, then I'll ask if we'd stand in reverence for the reading of God's Word. Luke 2, 1 through 21. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to the firstborn, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you great news, good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. And may God bless the reading of his word. So this morning is part two of what we started uh, yesterday, uh, which was yesterday we were looking at the family tree of Jesus, at the family members and the scarlet thread uh, of redemption that is woven through the story of Jesus's family. And today we're going to look at a similar but distinct angle, and that is the covenant heads or the heroes of the Old Testament stories that we read about, whose stories and whose lives are designed also to point us to Jesus Christ. And naturally, this weaves in and out of Jesus's biological family tree. Since the beginning of time, since the beginning of creation, God has dealt with man in terms of covenants. And that is that God sets the terms by which he will relate to us, and then he puts us uh, in covenant. And we've discussed this before in different series. A covenant is much stronger than a contract. A covenant uh, is defined as a solemn bond, sovereignly administered, with promised blessings and curses. So a covenant is not like a contract that you can mutually opt out of. A covenant is a binding thing that God puts uh, man into, and there are blessings for obedience, and there are cursings for disobedience. 
And this morning, we want to see how Jesus concludes all these covenants that God has made in the past, how he completes and perfects all of them in his person. We want to see that he is the one that we've been waiting for. And we also want to see that as good as all the men of the past were, all these saints in the Old Testament, each one ends in some form of failure. Each one is inadequate for the task at hand. And the 4,000 years of anticipation is meant to make us hunger for a hero who would not fail us in the end because all the other ones have failed us in the end. There must be a greater one on the way. And that is the anticipation with which we have built up to Christmas. Each of these covenant heads looked beyond himself to the one that was greater than he was. And of course, this account starts with Adam. God established Adam to be a priest king over creation, and his job was to rule the earth and to maximize the blessings, to pull blessings out of the ground under the dominion of God. But, in a moment of weakness, despite being ordered to stay away from the, tr the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, God gives this command, stay away from that tree, as a reminder that even in his dominion, Adam is under the dominion of God, and in a moment of weakness, he grabs for that knowledge. He reaches out when he does not have permission. Adam fails this test when his wife is approached by the serpent. And by reaching this fruit, he is essentially saying, I am God. God's word is untrustworthy. Uh, I know what is best in my own mind. I will do as I see fit. And as a result, Adam and his wife are expelled from the garden and consigned to live the rest of their lives under a curse. And this is where this catastrophic divorce between God and man happens. God and man, heaven and earth, become divorced. And the rest of redemptive history is all about repairing from those ruins in the garden. After the fall, the biblical narrative takes a very somber tone. The one that Eve expects... Uh, to be her savior, this first seed, ends up murdering his brother. And by the time we get to Genesis 5, there's just this repeated emphasis on death. And he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. As a reminder that death is actually unnatural. Death was never, ever meant to be part of the natural world. It is unnatural. It is a corruption. It is a curse on this world. Genesis 6 is shrouded in mystery as it tells us about the rapid advancement of evil in the old world that then existed. 1 Peter 3 tells us that that was a different world than the one we're living in. Same planet, but a very different world. There's bizarre things that happen in Genesis 6, including an old man who spends his years building an ark. Noah's world is a world that is uh, going through a kind of a decreation. It's resorting back to the pre-creation chaos. And God enters into a covenant with Noah to preserve a people as he utterly destroys the first chapter of that creation. And by the end of the flood, we see a kind of recreation happening. The dove that comes back to Noah is a picture of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is often pictured as a dove. And this dove comes back with the terms of peace. And when this dove comes back over the flood waters to Noah... We're reminded of what we read about in Genesis 1-2, about how the Spirit is once again hovering over the face of the waters, and a new world starts to appear after catastrophe. Noah becomes, in this, another Adam figure. He is told to have dominion 
over the earth once again. He is told to be a gardener in this new creation, and he starts gardening as soon as the water recedes. He's told to be fruitful and multiply, just like Adam was. And God has given to Noah the terms of peace. The spirit dove carries an olive branch to signify God's peace. And God also puts a bow in the sky as a reminder that he is never going to do this again. And we still see that bow after a rain as a reminder of God's covenant promise uh, to Noah. And if you pay attention, this bow points upward. Okay, This is actually a bow. It points upward, meaning that God is about to take the arrow of his own wrath. He is taking that curse upon himself. When the psalmist talks about God wetting his sword and bending the bow, God's bow to Noah reminds us that God is going to take that arrow himself in the form of his son. And so recreation starts. This is like scaffolding that's building us up to Christ. And this is the first step of the way. And yet, despite all the promise, despite the recreation theme, what's the last we hear of Noah? He's drunk in front of his sons. He's brought shame and dishonor on his family. Surely there's going to be a better Noah. This one let us down. And years pass, and we move to Abram. And God makes further arrangements with him to be the father of a new humanity that he is building out of the people of the earth. Abram is going to sire a great nation, those who follow him in taking hold of the promises of God. And God also promises that all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed by him. We saw that yesterday. Abram's family is to inherit a vast piece of land that God has given them. And Abram and his sons after him are to receive a covenant sign from God as well. This time, it's circumcision. And in this sign, every man in this family is given a visible reminder on his body of what it means to be cut away. That God, uh, in his justice, would be perfectly just to have cut every last one of us away. And God puts a reminder of that on Abram's body and on the sons uh, of Abram's bodies in perpetuity as a reminder that they originate from somewhere and they are going, other people are going to originate out of them. In this sign, every man in Israel is reminded of his obligation that he carries to his grandfathers as well as to his grandsons. It's a reminder of origin. It's a reminder of cutting away. Because those who fail to take God's promises by faith are likewise going to be cut off and thrown out and cut off forever. The Bible says that Abram believed God and it was counted righteous. And yet, his family remains plagued by sin and struggle and envy and deceit. And they often struggle to properly press into the land of blessing that they are promised. And we're reminded that there must be a better Abram on the way. Someone yet more faithful. And we move to Moses. Moses is an interesting figure. He's born under a yoke of slavery in Egypt. And he's born at a time when the little boys are threatened by a power-hungry king, just like Jesus is born into a unique position like that. And we also see that Moses holds a unique position as a mediator. By ethnicity, he's Hebrew, and yet by adoption, he's an Egyptian. Moses is in a unique position to mediate both sides of the struggle that he finds himself in. Moses leads the Israelite out from under the bondage of sin, and then he takes them to the foot of Mount Sinai, where God once more goes over the terms of his covenants and reminds them of what he has promised 
to Abram. Just like Christ climbs the mountain and, and recapitulates this law, restates this law on his sermon on the mount. God wants to make these people a, priests, a priestly nation, a new kingdom. And he gives them his law and extensive, extensive promises for blessings and extensive curses for disobedience. And he repeats the pattern of creation once again by highlighting the importance of Sabbath and all the promises that it contains. And the people, of course, are very willing. Yes, we will do all these things. And within minutes, within hours, they have failed. Their disobedience starts almost immediately. And so Moses himself, despite all his capable and godly and courageous leadership, is unable to enter the promised land. By the end of his life, Moses is looking forward to a prophet greater than himself. One who would succeed in leading his people all the way home in a way that Moses himself could not. Moses himself saw that there must be a better Moses on the way. And when the people finally do enter Canaan, they start to demand a king over them. And God, first of all, gives them Saul, but after his moral failure, God then anoints David to serve. And God enters into covenant with David. And David is largely successful in subduing and defeating God's enemies. And he restores order to the people, and he desires to build a temple so that God can once again dwell with his people. And yet David is not allowed to. That privilege is going to wait for his son, Solomon. And yet for all the good we hear about David, and the fact that he is a man after God's own heart, David is an abject failure in many ways. This man is given over to adultery that ends up destroying his family. There's a civil war between his children. There's incestuous rape among his children. There's a kingdom battle among his grandchildren. And so for all the good that he does, in the end, he is plagued by adultery, violence. He is a failed father. And he is going to have civil war in his family. And so surely we're reminded that there must be a greater David on the way as well. And interwoven into all this, all the promise, all the drama, all the heartbreak, all the disappointment. The prophet Isaiah says what we read this morning. For unto us a child is born. To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice, with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. In each of the covenants that God makes after the fall, there is expansion and growth. Each one builds on the last one. It is very much like scaffolding. Each building, as we, uh, as we point to this kingdom of Christ and to the Christ that is on his way, these are scaffolding steps uh, that lead us there. So there is expansion. There is growth. And God is surely and slowly unveiling his purposes, uncovering more and more of his plans, and covering more and more ground as he goes. The biblical narrative in the Old Testament goes from a man to a tribe to a nation and even a kingdom. And even before the advent of Christ, we see in the shadows and in the promises how Christ's government is increasing. And the anticipation, anticipation of the Messiah is the fulfillment of all these ancient promises. Everything that these saints did imperfectly, Christ completes perfectly. Christ becomes the better Adam who resists temptation. 
to prematurely grab hold of God's gifts. And isn't it interesting? It, we often focus on uh, the humanity of Christ when it says that he grew in wisdom and stature. Think of that relative to the failed Adam who has promised knowledge. He's promised wisdom and he just grabs it prematurely. Jesus Christ does it faithfully. He grows in wisdom as a man. He is a much better Adam. Jesus is a better gardener of a new creation than Noah was. He's a gardener without sin. And he is heir to God's promise that through Abram's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Jesus, instead of temporarily taking hold of Canaan and then being exiled in the end, Christ inherits all the nations from his father. By the end of his ministry, he can tell his disciples that all authority in heaven and on earth has been invested in this better Abram, Jesus Christ. Christ is also the greater prophet that Moses saw from afar. He is a perfect law keeper who is going to lead his people out from the yoke of slavery and sin and give them eternal Sabbath in him. And so the birth pangs and the groanings that we saw yesterday is all reaching its termination point today at Christmas in the city of David. Christ is born in his grandfather David's ancestral home and he is heir to those promises as well. The greater son of David has come to take his rightful and eternal throne. Ray read in Galatians 4 verse 4 earlier and it says, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. That word fullness in Greek is pleroma, and it's hard to describe in English because it's not just full. Like if you'd fill a coffee cup right to the top, that's not pleroma. Okay? Pleroma is you take this coffee cup and you keep pouring after it starts overflowing. It's overflowing fullness. And that's what I meant yesterday when I said it wasn't just Mary, but it's the cosmos which are pregnant with anticipation. This fullness is reaching its boiling point. It's running over. It's not just up to the brim. It's over. It can't help but come out. And as the Old Testament draws to a close, we see how these prophecies start to be unfilled. Daniel clearly saw it. This building up and tearing down of these empires that lead us to Jesus. We see how the Assyrians conquer the northern kingdom. And then the Babylonians conquer uh, the, the southern kingdom years later. And we have the Medo-Persians and, and what they all do. But then we have Alexander and the Greeks coming in. And Alexander... Uh, in his conquest, sets up synagogues in all these cities where there's Jewish men. And he brings a common language, Greek, which your Bible is written in to this place. Okay, so it's not just in biblical history that God is working and preparing the cosmos for this. He's doing this with people that don't get named by name in the Bible, and yet they are very much prophesied. So even in these so-called years of silence, as God's people wait between the end of the Old Testament and the beginning of the New Testament, God is playing the chessboard perfectly. He sends this winged creature from the east, Alexander, to set up these synagogues and to give the people a common language. And as his empire starts to crumble, and you see there's this love triangle between the Egyptian queen Cleopatra and Mark Antony, and Mark Antony betrays uh, his wife, uh, who was the sister of the rival ruler in the west of this empire, Octavian. And a civil war ensues. And Octavian is angry. 
that Mark Antony has betrayed his wife in order to go take Cleopatra. And he sends his troops down there. And he kills Mark Antony. And uh, Cleopatra, or so he's said to have killed Mark Antony, and Cleopatra uh, is heartbroken and she kills herself. And when Mark Antony sees that Cleopatra has killed herself, he kills himself. And there's uh, suicide at the end of all this, which leaves Octavian as the sole standing consolidator and ruler of this great empire and he renames himself Julius Caesar and immediately or Caesar Augustus and immediately we're back into the biblical narrative this man has consolidated his empire and now it is time for a census okay so the next time you watch that Elizabeth Taylor movie Cleopatra and she comes rolling out of the carpet and she's in the king's palace that's part of preparing for Jesus Christ God is ruling not just biblical things, but things that you read about in world history. He's all lining it up, the fullness of time. He's making sure that all the moves on the chessboard are done to perfection. And then he brings in the Romans under this rule. And the Romans build roads, and they have uh, a whole system to get the gospel out once it's time. God is moving all the pieces, that it is the perfect time. We have roads, we have synagogues, we have a common language, we have an emperor who is consolidating his power and calling for a census at the exact right time. And not only that, but the stage of Mary and Joseph's betrothal is also perfectly timed. That it's after their betrothal, but before their marriage, which means that Joseph truly is the covenant head at this point already. You had to get a divorce to get out of an engagement. So Joseph really is covenant head, but they are not yet married. So there is no sexual union happening. So Joseph really is the head of Jesus Christ and yet comes from a virginal mother. God is timing this perfectly. And so the history of the world is so interwoven into God's plans that we end up right back in the biblical narrative after all these years of silence and intrigue and soap opera. The census that is called for here is the first of its kind in history. And it served as a kind of restart to the promises of God. Keep in mind, this isn't the center of the empire. This is the Roman Empire, headquartered in Italy. This is out the farthest eastern reaches. And yet think of the downstream consequences as these dominoes fall. The descendants of David must go back to the city of their father. This is like a creational restart. And Isaiah saw what what leads us to the peace and the purity of a barn full of animals and a baby who is the most unlikely of kings. Just like all the unlikely heroes before him, God's redemptive purposes have grown bigger and bigger up to Christ. And on Christmas morning, they have made landfall. King Jesus is here to take the joy and the burden of his kingdom upon his shoulders. And his virgin birth is actually another chapter of a new creation narrative. In Luke 1, verse 35, it says, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow or hover over you. Therefore, the child is to be born, to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And so here again, you have the Spirit of God hovering over the waters of Mary's womb, recreating a new people of God. He really is wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And who would have guessed that a barn in a remote village would serve as the pinprick on the map from which all righteousness is going to creep out? From which Christ is going to build his indestructible government that would forever fan out 
And as the shepherds watched over their flocks, the great shepherd makes his appearance. And that's what we are celebrating this morning. The hopes and fears of all the years are met in you tonight. The God-man, the final covenant keeper, the promised one has finally come. Our better Adam, our better Noah, our better Abram, our better Moses, and our better David is here to assume the government of the world upon his shoulders and to bring peace to his people. And so we can agree with Luke's record. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. And so if, you, if God is pleased with you this morning, if you have taken the promise by faith in God's purposes and God's saving purposes for his creation and for you, then you are grafted into this story. God's favor, God's peace is resting on you this morning if you receive it by faith. Let's pray. Father, thank you for slowly unrolling your purposes through history. Lord, you know how slow we learn and you know how slow you have to tell a story for us to even begin to catch on what you are doing. Lord, I want to thank you for all the failed hero stories that you have given us, all the failed covenant heads to cause in us a deep hunger for a better hero, for one who would truly save us, truly keep your law perfectly and deliver us from the bondage of sin. Lord, I want to thank you that that happened on Christmas morning when you sent your son, when the God-man entered his creation. Lord, when the fullness of the cosmos and the fullness of Mary were so full to overflowing that it could not but burst forth into new creation life. Lord, I pray for each one here this morning. I pray that the rebirth uh, that you offer to your creation would be true and alive and active in each one's heart this morning. Lord, that we can know that you are no longer our enemy, you are no longer our judge, but that we can have peace with you through your son, through his gospel. Lord, I pray that we would internalize that by faith in each one here this morning. And then that, that would also create in us a fullness that spills over into hospitality, into cheer, into the enjoyment of food, the enjoyment of gifts, and also the compassion to grieve with those who are grieving and to come alongside the lonely and the heartbroken. Lord, you have filled us, and I pray that that would be contagious as we, in turn, bring that joy and fill others with it. Thank you for keeping your promises. Thank you for sending your son. And I pray that we would celebrate in that spirit today, through the rest of the holidays, and always. Pray this all in the strong name of Jesus, and amen.